This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, welcome to this week's Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and joining me this week is Danny Hewson. Hi, Dan. It has been another volatile week. I use that word a lot at the moment. Another volatile week for markets. But of course, the big news is Elon Musk's Twitter takeover. But exactly how's he going to find the cash to pay for it? Tesla shares have plummeted amidst concern from its shareholders that the world's richest man might be forced to sell off some of his stake to fund his new venture. Yeah, and as Danny says, it has been volatile for a host of reasons, from concerns about more China lockdowns to warnings from companies yet again that inflation is biting hard. So we'll go through some of the high and low points from the past week, including some updates from Microsoft, Alphabet, Coca-Cola and Primark owner Associated British Foods. It is also time for another Pensions Corner and Tom Selby is here. Hi, Tom. Hi, Danny. Yes, this week's question is all about the state pension and when and how you qualify for pension credit. We'll also be hearing from Craig Martin from Dynam Capital, which makes portfolio decisions for the Vietnam Holding Investment Trust. He'll be talking about investing in Vietnam and all the opportunities he's seen over the years. Plus, are you cutting back a new survey from Consumer Group, which shows six in 10 people have had to make adjustments to their lifestyle in the last month? Unsurprisingly, it's having a knock on to retail sales. But long term, should we be bullish about the sector? So it really is full swing for corporate earnings season at the moment. We've also got Russia cutting off gas supplies to Poland and Bulgaria and fears that Beijing might end up in another lockdown. So, you know, there's plenty to trouble the markets at the moment. But despite that incredibly complicated geopolitical picture, once again, one man has dominated business headlines. On Monday this week, Twitter confirmed that they were recommending Elon Musk's offer to buy Twitter at $54.20 a share. They said it represented a 38% premium on the closing price on April the 1st, the day before this incredibly long-winded saga began. It has been quite a saga. From buying just over a 9% stake, to accepting a seat on the board, to then backing out, to then launching this take-it-or-leave-it bid, which really did raise some eyebrows. And a lot of people thought at first that it was a joke. Now, of course, some of that was connected to the offer price, 54.20. Of course, 4.20, for anyone that knows Elon Musk, it is shorthand for the act of smoking cannabis, something that the world's richest man has done publicly during many interviews. So a lot of people were saying, look, is he serious? Is there a real offer here? Then we had Twitter launching a poison pill, the financial device that companies have used forever to stave off unwanted advances. Twitter then made it clear it would leave the door open for other suitors or a sweeter offer from Mr. Musk if one was available. But the world's richest man had been clear from the get-go this was a take-it-or-leave-it offer. And over the course of you know the last few weeks, it, it, it's obviously become clear that there wasn't another suitor for Twitter. And when Elon Musk revealed exactly where and how he was going to fund this offer, that then changed dynamics. 
Yeah, I mean, he's paying with $13 billion in bank loans. There's another $12.5 billion in loans that are secured against his own stock in Tesla. And he's pledged another $21 billion in equity financing. But he hasn't actually outlined the source of that money. And I think there's a fear at the moment that he'll sell some of his shares in Tesla to raise that cash. Um, and that's why we, we saw a, a big decline in Tesla on, on Tuesday. He's also apparently in talks with some wealthy individuals and institutional investors who might want to back a portion of that bid. But, um, you know, at the moment, whilst there are some numbers on the table, there's still question marks about actually, is there going to be enough cash on, you know, to actually fund this deal? There are also lots of questions about exactly what he will do with Twitter if he does get it. Um, Elon Musk has been clear, he's spoken publicly that he's not doing it to make money, which I suppose might make some people raise their eyebrows, but he's doing it because he feels that the platform is important to protect the future of civilization. I mean, you know, the, the rhetoric has been quite incredible. He has been clear that he wants the platform to be a place for free speech, less intervention, no bans, not just, um, you know, to, to deliver just timeouts instead, which, of course, then has led to lots of speculation that Donald Trump might be allowed back on the platform. Would you like to see Donald Trump back on Twitter, Dan? Not particularly, no. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, he, Donald Trump, to be, to be fair, has said, look, you know, I'm not interested in, in getting back on Twitter. Um, he's got his own social media site, though, to be fair, truth is not exactly setting the world on fire. We do know a few things. We know Elon Musk has pushed for an edit button, which is something Twitter say they were already working on. But, you know, there, there are big questions about having something like Twitter, because it really does punch above its weight, you know, politically, it, it's conversation forming, it's taste making. And to have it in private hands, makes some people uncomfortable. And uh, there, were, there were a lot of people saying that, you know, tweeting that they would leave Twitter if it went into Mr. Musk's private hands. We do know that regulators are unlikely to set up any roadblocks because Elon Musk's other ventures don't have any real overlaps in terms of competition issues. But, you know, among the workforce, there is real concern. What will it mean? How will the platform evolve? Because, you know, cracking down on bots is one thing. But what about the duty of care that platforms have to protect their users from hate speech, from stuff that isn't true? And also, you know, ultimately, Elon Musk is a businessman. So although he says it's not about making money, somewhere along the line, someone, somehow, this business is going to have to at least pay for the amount of cash that he is borrowing. Um, and we've seen also uh, Twitter's share price fall slightly over the last couple of days, which suggests that maybe some investors aren't entirely sure that this is all going to happen. Well, you know, Elon Musk can walk away from this deal and you have to pay a billion dollars to do so. Um, you know, that, that works out to be 2.27% of the overall deal value. And and some people are saying, actually, that's, that's not bad. You know, it's probably half what you'd normally see that a private equity firm would have to pay if it, if it walked away from an acquisition. So, um, and... According to the merger contract, Twitter could 
sue Elon Musk if he doesn't provide this equity financing after all these conditions have been met. But again, the damages would be limited to to a billion dollars here. Well, we'll find out exactly what Twitter the business is looking like after Wall Street's closing bell tomorrow. We're recording this Wednesday lunchtime. That means that we have already had updates from the first of the mamas. Mamas versus Fang, where do you stand on this, Dan? Well, I think every week there seems to be sort of a new phrase. I must admit, mama is a new one to me. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Well, Mad Money's Jim Cramer, of course, coined Fang back in 2013. It included Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix and Google. Then Microsoft was added. But then, of course, we had some name changes. So we had Facebook becoming Meta and Google becoming Alphabet. So last year, very quietly, Jim Cramer said, all right, we're going to change it. We're going to call it Mama. Interestingly, drops Netflix from the lineup. Draw your own conclusions from that. However, I digress because we have had updates from two of the quintet. And I'm going to start with the good Microsoft. Now, this is really interesting because shares actually fell slightly upon the news, um, despite the fact that revenue for the tech titans third quarter was up 21% on a year ago. And the intelligent cloud arm really sort of carrying this, that part of the business jumped 26% and seriously beat expectations. And we also had Chief Executive Satya Nadella um, giving double-digit revenue growth guidance for the next fiscal year, again driven by demand for cloud computing services. Now, uh, shares sort of in, in the last couple of hours have jumped by about 4%. Um, but, you know, clearly there are some clouds sort of just on the horizon and um, the interim um, chief financial officer, um, sorry, not interim at all, but the chief financial officer, Amy Hood, said that the company's business could be impacted if China's shutdown over the pandemic extends into May, although the, the current shutdown is already reflected in Microsoft's outlook. Um, but it is interesting because Microsoft doesn't seem to have the sort of same shiny, sexy cachet of a lot of those big tech growth stocks. Perhaps it's because it's kind of an old name on the block now. Yeah, I mean, it's it's one of those sort of services that you know, it's embedded into people's computers. You've got Microsoft Word and, um, you know, lots of businesses use it. But yeah, I mean, I guess it's, it's, it's not a glamorous one, is it? But, in, you know, that's probably quite a good thing. So I think a lot of people get too carried away by by stuff. Alphabet is um, got a bit more sort of uh, buzz and excitement about it. That also reported um, its numbers, and you know they didn't go down well at all. People, the main thing here is that people worried about um, a dip in growth for you know, YouTube, which is one of the sort of um, sort of businesses owned by. Alphabet, of course, Alphabet's main brand that you perhaps know will be Google. But, you know, YouTube has been one of the big earnings drivers for the group um, 
millions of people sort of now treat this as a priority destination for content. Uh, you know, my kids, when they go on, they think, okay, I'll sit down and watch a bit of TV. The first thing they'll do is watch something on YouTube. And um, <laughs> Yeah, mine too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, th- I think that, um, you know, it's suffered because um, – Russia's invasion of Ukraine um, sort of worried a lot of um, big corporates. And so advertising spend was a bit less than perhaps people expected. Of course, it's got um, Google's sort of near complete shutdown of operations. And Russia's going to provide um, sort of a bit of a headwind as well. There's foreign exchange issues as well to think about in the coming um, quarter. But it's worth putting some perspective into some of these figures. YouTube's advertising revenue was $6.9 billion in the quarter. Now, whilst that's below forecast, you have to remember that Alphabet bought YouTube as a business for only $1.65 billion in 2006. So it's been a monster of a success story. And I just think that, you know, yes, we're going to have a dip in advertising. And you know, as we record this, meta platforms uh, numbers are not out. But I think this is sort of raised expectations that meta might have pretty um, sort of disappointing advertising revenue here. But like we, you, know, you have to think about it. It's it, This is just a quarter. We're only talking about three months of um, you know income here. If you take a longer view of what Alphabet has been doing as a business, there's it, 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 no doubt it's been very, very successful. And some of this is comparative as well, because if you think about the last couple of years during the pandemic with people stuck at home, particularly with the likes of YouTube, you know, my kids were doing school lessons. Yes. However, I do know that they were also watching YouTube at the same time. There were a number of occasions when I went upstairs and it's like, aren't you supposed to be on a live lesson? Yes. Yeah, it's on. <laughs> and it was muted. <laughs> so you can sort of understand why some of these numbers are looking a little less favorable by comparison um but it is having a knock-on i think to investors already sort of nervous about interest rate hikes and what we saw overnight um was the single biggest day of declines in two years the nasdaq plunged almost four percent the steepest one day drop since 2020 taking losses for the month above 12% and for the year to date over 21%. Now, it's not just these tech titans earning figures which disappoint or or not. Of course it's not. And it's also not just about uh, inflation or fears about rate hikes. There's a whole load of other things going on. We mentioned, obviously, um, the situation in China, potential for more lockdowns and how that will impact global economic growth. We've also had just in the last couple of hours, Russia halting gas supplies to Bulgaria and Poland after they rejected paying for that in rubles um, because obviously of the the situation in Ukraine. It is an incredibly complex geopolitical environment that we are operating in at the moment. There's so much for investors to think about. And when you start sort of factoring that in to people's everyday lives as well and the cost of living crisis which is affecting consumers you know it's pretty massive and pricing power becomes really important and one set of results which caught my eye 
um, was that of Coca-Cola and Pepsi. Very similar stories for these two giants. Um, Coca-Cola's net revenues grew 16% to £8.3 billion. Revenues were up 18%. They're also talking about uh, full-year organic revenue growth of between 7 and 8%. Pepsi raised its annual sales forecast because of robust demand for snacks and fizzy drinks, despite the fact it has been forced to put prices up. I think Coke put prices up by about 6% um, on average. But because the world has reopened after COVID and we've got ball games going on, we've got people going to restaurants, people going to movies, and they are drinking and they are eating snacks, but also, you know, these things are, are kind of little treats and it's the brand name. And it was really interesting because the head of Coca-Cola, um, when he was uh, speaking just after these results were announced um, yesterday, was warning that, you know, brand owners must invest in their brands to justify passing cost increases onto consumers. He was talking about all sorts of things from packaging to the sort of size of those great big bottles that you could get for people. But, you know, clearly there are issues for a lot of these businesses. And, and although they're talking about, um, you know, pretty impressive outlooks, they are also warning about potential additional price increases because of global supply chain constraints and raw material costs globally. Well, Another company that's sort of suffering from you know inflationary pressures, and finally made that decision to push up some of its selling prices is, is Primark, which is owned by Associated British Foods. So, poor old shares in uh, Associated British Foods are now at a five-year low. I, you know, I, everyone got excited in you know, over the last decade about how Primark was doing incredibly well, um, but I think the, the the issue that's troubling investors now is that. The people who are on a lower income, they're going to be sort of disproportionately hit by rising cost of living, particularly by energy prices. So um, they'll have a lot less money left in their pocket after they've um, settled up their bills. And of course, Primark is appeals to sort of the lower income individual. And so there's a fear that people just simply won't be able to go out and buy clothes unless they're absolutely essential. So, um, you know, the market is pricing in a, a sort of a big hit or pressures on profit margins to to uh, associate British foods, and it's all focused on what will they think will be happening with Primark. We were just talking about those China lockdowns, and it's prompted lots of talks about the future of investing in Asia. A lot of investors like to have exposure to Asia to access fast-growing companies, whilst most of the attention is paid to Chinese markets. Vietnam has been a good place to put your money in recent years. There are several ways to access Vietnam via collectives on the UK stock market, including Vietnam Holding, which was the fourth best performing investment trust of all geographies, sectors and styles in 2021, with an 82% return. Now, to find out more about the country and the types of companies on its stock market. I caught up with Vietnam expert Craig Martin. And he's the chairman of Dynam Capital, which makes all the portfolio decisions for the Vietnam Holding Investment Trust. So, Craig, can you just start by sort of explaining why you think 
Vietnam is attractive from an investment perspective? Well, I think Vietnam's got two great stories. It's probably got many, but two. One is the domestic opportunity. You've got close to 100 million people, uh, increasing levels of wealth, um, $3,000 per capita GDP. So there's a consumer market, and that's an increasingly digitally savvy consumer market. So that's the first story. The second story is that Vietnam is increasingly a manufacturing hub for the world, key part of the world's supply chain. So that attracts manufacturers for export, and they need business services, ports, logistics, financial services, that kind of thing. So there's two great drivers, two great legs to the story. Yeah, I've heard these stories about Vietnam sort of setting itself up as a sort of this alternative manufacturing hub for companies. And, um, you know, but we're now seeing Western businesses sort of talking about, you know, should, should we perhaps have our manufacturing closer to home? We want to avoid the supply chain disruptions that we saw during COVID. I'm just wondering if you think actually this could be a threat to Vietnam and, um, and whether that's actually made you rethink any of your investments because sort of the manufacturing outlook that looked so strong a couple of years ago may not be quite so from now as we stand today. Actually, I, I think it's almost the other way around. The, the supply chain disruptions that we've seen over the last couple of years have actually played to Vietnam's strength. Um, firstly, Vietnam is a very open economy, you know, 200% of its GDP through trade. And it's been a key part of a number of important trade agreements, the Regional Comprehensive Economic uh, Program for, for, for Trade, also uh, the Trans-Pacific Partnership in its new form, and a lot of bilateral uh, arrangements. So manufacturers want you know, certainty on terms of trade. So under those kind of agreements, Vietnam's an attractive place. They want a country that's got experience multi-decades in being part of a global supply chain. And Vietnam's not going to take manufacturing for everything. Um, it's going to play to those areas where it's got good competitive advantage. There's still a role for that. It's a significant manufacturer of yeah, trainers and, uh, and apparel, but also increasingly high-tech goods. And once someone's moved to a country to manufacture, a lot of the supply chain component companies also move as well. So it's quite a sticky source of, uh, of investment into somewhere like Vietnam. And I think it's proven itself as a, a very uh, connected country in terms of trade. And it's not perhaps seen as one of these kind of threatening heavyweight countries like the US or or China that will have these kind of political kind of disruptions. So I think the world has to have a global supply chain. Yes, there are lots of kind of moves towards onshoring for certain se segments, but I think it's unrealistic to assume that any country can be entirely self-sufficient. So you're always going to need kind of low cost, high capability manufacturing countries like Vietnam. So perhaps could you sort of explain, give a couple of examples of things that you you, you actually invest in, and um, what is it about these sort of these companies that make them so attractive? So we yeah those two legs. One is the domestic economy, and then one is kind of the export story. On on the domestic economy, uh, we like uh, players in in the retail space, perhaps uh, omni-channel retailers. We're investing one of. Uh, the largest omni-channel retailers in, in Vietnam, everything from mobile phones and computers and washing machines to, to groceries. We're also invested in a very great company that we've been invested in for a decade, which is a jewelry business. It wholesales gold, but it also sells and manufactures jewelry for uh, the disposable income of the Vietnamese consumer. And then on the kind of export story, we're not really trying to pick individual winners. That's a bit risky. So we're looking more at the kind of 
business to business linkages. So one of our investments is in a in the country's second largest seaport and logistics business, just growing great guns as Vietnam cements that kind of supply chain position. And then the other great theme that we like is digitalization. So the Vietnamese, Vietnamese consumer is digitally savvy now, um, and that bodes well for one of our, our top companies, actually, that is both a broadband uh, supplier and pay TV, and that's growing at double-digit rates, but it's also a big IT services company for Vietnamese companies as well as international Fortune 500 companies. So if we were to kind of distill the opportunity set down, we say it's about urbanization. So as the country increases its level of urbanization from a, a very low base today, Vietnam's urbanization is kind of less than 40%. And that's where Europe was after the Second World War. So urbanization is one theme, and that plays well for kind of real estate developers, uh, modern shopping, modern retail, those kind of things. The other one would be the industrialization. So this is the global supply chain and the business to business services uh, in that space. And then the domestic consumers, the domestic consumption opportunities. And I suppose you'd wrap all of that up with a good kind of financial services set. So we're, you know, probably have about a quarter of our portfolio in, in a number of leading banks in, in Vietnam. So simple things, you know, we're looking to find you know, businesses that can compound their earnings in you know, sectors that will benefit from the dramatic uh, Vietnam growth story over the next five to 10 years. I think if, if someone in the UK is sort of perhaps looking to add sort of a sort of taste of Vietnam to their sort of a diversified portfolio, um, there would be a lot of sort of trust on, um, you know, perhaps using a specialist fund manager like yourself to look at this area. But where, where do we sort of stand in terms of the sort of the risks of putting money into this 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 country, I've seen a list that suggests that you know corporate governance standards perhaps aren't as good as they are in, in sort of the Western world. Um, there's a bit of corruption and you know occasions of fraud in financial statements. But what's your your sort of experience of this, and how would you sort of separate a, a bad company from a good one? It's a great question. Look, I think it's the one year anniversary of Greensill, which I think was a UK company with a former UK prime yeah. minister on his board. Uh, Wirecard, I think, was a German company. So I don't think Asian companies uh, have any exclusivity on kind of learning better governance. But to be a, a serious point, we think it's that's also an opportunity. So we set ourselves out to be very engaged with our portfolio companies. And we've got a small portfolio, maybe 25 to 30 companies. And my business partner co-founded the Vietnam Institute of Directors. So it has a very authentic voice on corporate governance. So we provide training. Uh, my business partner actually you know, teaches people how to be uh, good directors of Vietnamese public companies. And we use it as a way to kind of sift through the, um, the good from the, from the bad. Uh, in Vietnam, there's 1,600 companies to choose from. And as I say, we've only got 25 or 30 in our portfolio. So we use the kind of corporate governance and more broadly ESG frameworks that we've developed to help us sift um, good quality companies from that larger kind of investment pool. Uh, and then as we get to know them, we get our confidence and our conviction increases and they do what they say they're going to do. And we mark them up on our scorecard and, and put more money to work. So I don't think there's any uh, monopoly on, on, on bad actors in Vietnam or Southeast Asia or as perhaps in, in Europe. And, and the rest of the world, with the exception that the capital markets are still very young. So Vietnam stock market is only 20 years old, UK and other worlds, you know, 100, 100, more than 100 years. So um, they've got a, a lot to, 
to do, and they're developing, they're moving quickly, uh, but they do want to, to adapt. So, you know, I think many more developed economies are insisting that their public companies have better climate transparency, well, the same in Vietnam, uh, except you know, we're also having to provide training to those companies in how they report on their carbon footprints, et cetera. So um, I think there's a journey around governance. And for those you know, UK investors, I think it's yeah, it would risky if they wanted to kind of pick a particular company in Vietnam and set up a brokerage account in Vietnam and buy one company. That would not be wise. You mentioned diversification. So we have a diversified kind of portfolio across different sectors, albeit in the key themes we like. And for investors, they're buying a fund which is listed in London on the main board of the London Stock Exchange. You know, recognize there are always risks in emerging economies. So we do our due diligence on companies and we've been at it for a long time. And you know, we know the companies we like and, and many of them we've held for you know, a decade. We've seen great compound earnings. So sometimes we, we don't get it right and we have to, you know, the company does something we didn't think it would do and, and we'll sell the position. But I say that's probably the same in, in many economies, not just in, in Vietnam or Southeast Asia. Well, Craig Martin, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. It's brilliant to have you on the show. No, it's my pleasure. Thank you ever so much. Dan talking to Craig Martin from Dynam Capital. And do let us know if there's anyone that you think we should be talking to or any subjects you'd like us to cover. Email us podcast at ajbell.co.uk. One thing we get loads of questions about, we love getting questions about this, pensions, which is why we regularly sound the buzzer for our pensions corner. And now is that time. Tom Selby, AJ Bell's Head of Retirement Policy is with us to give you your full title. Hi, Tom. Hello. So this week's question is from Sonia, and it's in two parts. It says, I'm 62 and have worked all my life. What am I likely to receive from the state from age 66? And how does pension credit work? So Tom, let's start with the first part. Yep. So state pension system, not as simple as you would perhaps like it to be. So the the full flat rate state pension is worth £185.15 per week in 2022-23. And the current state pension age is 66. Now, if you're going to qualify for that full flat rate amount, you need a 35-year national insurance contribution record, and you need at least a 10-year national insurance contribution record to qualify for any state pension at all. But the state pension system isn't quite as simple as that. So the system was reformed in 2016, and lots of people have built up state pension entitlement under the old pre-2016 system, which is quite complicated, as well as the new uh, post-2016 system. So assuming that Sonia built up state pension entitlement under the pre-2016 system, system which is, is likely given that she's 62 years old, she'll have had a foundation amount calculated as at the 6th of April 2016. So that's when the new state pension system was introduced. Now, that foundation amount will have been the higher of the amount that she'd have been entitled to under the old system and the amount that she'd have been entitled to had the new system, so the post-2016 system, been in place when she started building up her state pension entitlement. So anyone with a foundation amount equal to or greater 
then the full flat rate state pension amount on the 6th of April 2016 would get that higher amount. So a combination of the full flat rate state pension plus what's called a protected payment. But then they wouldn't be able to build up any more state pension entitlement on top of that. Those with an amount lower than the full flat rate amount on the 6th of April 2016 would have been able to continue building up national insurance contributions and build up a right up until the full flat rate amount. So quite complicated, but you can check your state pension entitlement online. Um, worth remember as well, it's up to you as an individual to claim your state pension. So that won't be done automatically for you. You need to claim your state pension from the Department for Work and Pensions. So, Tom, what about the pension credit mm. part of Sonia's um, question? How does that work? Yeah, so pension credit is is another key benefit provided by the state for those over state pension age. And it's actually, actually quite a problematic one because it tends to go unclaimed by lots of people. So in 2022-23, if you're over state pension age, so age 66, and you're single and your income is less than £182.60 a week, then pension credit will top you up to that, that amount. If you're, you're part of a couple, then the combined income figure is £287.70 that your, that your income will be topped up to by pension credit. Um, in relation to pension credit, your income includes your state pension, other pensions, employment or self-employment earnings, as well as most social security benefits. What One thing to remember about pension credit is that it's not just a valuable benefit in terms of the money that you get, but it acts as a gateway to other benefits as well. So if you're in receipt of pension credit, then you'll be entitled to things like housing benefit, potentially, you'll be able to get a free, t- free TV license, um, help with NHS treatment, glasses, transport, transport costs, all sorts of things aimed at low income households. So if you think you might be eligible, then it's well worth making a claim. Thank you, Tom. A deceptively complicated question there. Um, Look, I know that you and Laura particularly are both being besieged by questions about the cost of living crisis, which we're in the middle of. And there have been a whole host of stories. I'm, I'm sure you both have seen them over the last couple of weeks and surveys just highlighting some of what's going on. And one really caught my attention this morning, which is from consumer group, which now, which has found out that six out of 10 people said that they have had to make Make adjustments to their lifestyle or finances in the last month. We've got people dipping into savings if they're lucky enough to have them. Others are turning to credit as a way to see them through all those additional pressures on household budgets. Uh, and I must admit, I did actually have a, a good long look through um, our household budgets just because the cost of everything is going up and up. We had an increase from the milkman. Um, some of the kids' lesson costs have gone up just the food shop is just insane. So I've actually um, got rid of a couple of subscriptions and saved about 30 quid. Are you guys cut back on anything? Not yet. I think I'm waiting to see just how bad things are get over the next couple of months. Um, maybe, that, maybe that's a sign of me not sort of keeping a close eye on my finances. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely, it's definitely made um, myself and my, and my, my partner, um, well, my, my wife now got married quite recently. <laughs> Um, we've had a we're, we're, give we're it the right a, title, yeah. <laughs> we're having we're having a real look through um, through our bills and some of the perhaps unnecessary subscriptions that we've got because um, 
while it's you know, for, for a lot of people, I think the, the, the increase in energy bills hasn't quite come through yet. And a lot of the increased costs aren't quite being felt yet. You know that it's going to happen further, further down the line. So we're we're trying to look at things now and prepare ourselves now so we can perhaps cut back on some of the day to day stuff so we can still keep squirreling some money away for the future. I wonder if I'm like quite a lot of people in that during the pandemic, you know, you're at home and I had two teenage girls at home. So we just bumped up the number of um, TV subscription services mm. that we have. Um, things like ink, I pay for, for ink by the month. And because they were off, we had to buy more ink. And suddenly I'm thinking, where's that £20 a month coming from? And it's ink and I'm not printing anything anymore. And it's so easy to let these things slide. And there are some quite simple ways to be able to cut back. But you're right. I mean, have you had an increase in, in your energy prices yet? Have you your direct debit gone up? Well, I had an email from my energy provider and the direct debit level was exactly the same as it has been for the last two years. So <laughs> either they've not got around to adjusting it or uh, I don't know. I'm, I certainly was expecting a big jump. Yeah, yeah, I think we've got a bit of a surplus with our uh, energy provider. So we're, we're seeing a little bit of a jump, but not quite what you would be expecting, I think, um, I think nationwide. But it it is worrying for, for everyone, I think. And it's uh, it definitely makes sense to to sit down and and really have a look at what 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 increases you might be expecting and and ways you can hopefully save some money to get by. And we're storing up some big problems as well, I think, because just looking at the survey I was talking about, um, four out of 10 people said that they were borrowing extra to make ends meet, either from friends and family, but one in eight had taken out a new credit card or had borrowed on an existing one. And in some cases, people are using that, you know, just to pay the extra on their energy bill or the extra on their food shop. And of course, this is incredibly dangerous territory because then you're going to have to start paying interest on top of that as well, which uh, does mean for some people, these financial situation is going to get really quite precarious. Yeah, and I think you'll, you'll probably see some of, some, of, some of that with people's retirement pots as well. I suspect lots of people who are, who are over age 55 who, who can flexibly access their pension might be tempted to um over over the course of the next year or two just to make ends meet you'll have people who are taking an income in drawdown who faced with eight percent inflation might be forced to make take increased withdrawals from that just to maintain their standard of living um obviously nothing wrong with either of those decisions but as, as we always say you need to consider the the long-term impact of those of, of, of what you're doing there as there as well as any any short-term impact that you you're, you're feeling on your finances so not to downplay the effect this is all having on people, uh, but this is clearly a money markets podcast. So it is important to look at the impact this is having on businesses. And Danny, the retail sector is being particularly affected at the moment. Yeah, there were some figures out um, last week from the Office for National Statistics um, about UK retail sales. And I think people were quite surprised because sales fell by an unexpected 1.4% in March. And we also had February's sales figures revised down. Now, this is because of lower levels of discretionary spending. I've seen lots of surveys and, and comments from people talking about the fact that they're having to cut back on things that aren't necessary. And that, of course, then is going to have a knock-on to those retail sales. And of course, as prices rise, people perhaps aren't going to want to buy those little extras because they think 
it's just too expensive. And it's not just, you know, all those little extras that discretionary spend, it's also happening on things like food. We had grocery prices 5.9% higher in April than a year ago. Now, this is the biggest increase since December 2011. That's according to some research from Kantar. Now, what's happening, of course, is that people are voting with their feet. Either, as we've seen with those retail sales figures, they're not spending in some cases, or they're trying to find the cheapest possible place to spend their money. So those figures from Kantar, that survey, also found that people were shifting to the discounters. So in terms of supermarkets, Aldi and Lidl have seen the number of people going to them growing by the fastest rate. So it's 4.2% over 12 weeks to the 17th of April, we're going to Aldi and Lidl was up 4%. It was really interesting because when you look at the list of supermarkets, we're used to seeing Tesco at the top in terms of sales. But if you combined Aldi and Lidl's sales for this period, for the first time, it would put them in at number two. And what we are seeing as well is that Morrisons and Asda are being particularly affected by this sort of drain. Now, they, of course, were recently taken over. Morrisons, of course, taken over by private equity and no longer listed on the stock exchange because we used to talk about Morrisons all the time. But there's kind of a feeling that maybe they've lost their way a little bit. They have now brought in um, price cuts, a huge campaign, but it took them quite a long time to do that. And a lot of people were sort of saying, you know, they really needed to grip this and was what was happening behind the scenes maybe part of the issue there. And I know, Dan, that you've been looking at the share price of some retailers over the last few weeks, and there have been some big drops. Yeah, I mean, you know, the market is worried about, um, you know, demand weakening um, and you know actually since the start of the year we've seen some really really big price falls pretty much across the board um, including some you know names that you think actually they're going to be successful we had B&M the other day sort of saying um, you know it, it, it seems to be holding up and that's that's the, the company that uh, I thought would benefit from perhaps people trading down but the share price was pretty weak on its numbers and you know, I just think that the market is definitely worried. So I, I, with this situation in mind, we thought it would be interesting to bring on an expert who's got a contrarian view. So Nick Clay runs the Red Wheel Global Equity Income Fund. And here's why he believes the retail sector actually has a strong backdrop. I think what's interesting about this time and this cycle uh, is that the pandemic cycle that was imposed upon us by the government, you know, we chose to shut down the economies, we chose to open everything up in the way we went about things, um, is that the consumer, and I know this sounds like a stri- rather strange thing to say, the consumer had a good pandemic. I Financially, they came through the pandemic pretty well, considering uh, how they come through most pandemic or recessions, which are uh, that they come out with the savings very low and in a quite a dire situation. And so this time round, the consumers come out with far larger savings pots than they've had traditionally uh, being the case. And of course, then it comes down to a bit of sort of stock and flow. So in the flow sense, your monthly income 
is obviously being put under a lot of pressure today because of inflation in our daily goods. Uh, and things don't look particularly great for the consumer on that front. And certainly it will dampen down consumer spending in that environment. However, because the stock of savings and the data which published in the US was $2.5 trillion of excess savings, because of the stock of savings that the consumer has, they're not in anywhere near as bad a position they would normally be. And I think that that's going to offer us a bit of protection. I think it will dampen down uh, some of the slowdown that we see in consumer spending uh, over the rest of this year as we go through this inflationary hump that we need to get through. And then what I find interesting is that the retail sector itself has gone through quite a dramatic change, again, because of the pandemic. Um, and what the pandemic effectively did was two things. One, it created a cycle in this industry, um, i.e. companies went bust. Uh, and we haven't seen a cycle in many industries for quite some time since the financial crisis. Um, and, and disappointing though it is for the companies which were weak and went bust, uh, for the companies that remain, they come out stronger in that position uh, as they gain market share. But equally, and more importantly, I would argue, is that the pandemic has kind of catapulted certain business models forward by about three or four years. So if you take Intertex, which owns Zara and Massimo Dutti, you know, they entered the pandemic with their online business being not much more than 10% of their business. And then they exited their, the pandemic with their online business being around 30, 35% of their business. I pulled forward the growth in their online business and it's pulled forward the revenues and therefore has made it less of a drag on margins now and more contributing to the bottom line. And so they're going into this slowdown in growth and maybe even a recession in a far stronger position from a business model point of view uh, because their business is far more developed now uh, between high street and online and also in one where the market has lost some capacity and yet intertex for example and its share price today is a, an absolute level that it was in march 2020 you know and in march 2020 at the at the bottom of the pandemic at the fiercest part of the pandemic every single one of its stores were closed uh, and as I said it hardly had an online business to supplement that and yet here today we're putting on the same valuation and um, you know what are we facing at worst we're probably facing a recession but even then given the strength of the consumer it might not be anywhere near as bad as previous recessions with a company in a far stronger position than it's been ever basically in its history so I find it really interesting that that part of the market, as you point out, has already been weak, is discounting, I think, quite a, a horrendous backdrop from, for an industry where quite a lot of the structural uh, things are actually turning more positive, stronger consumer, better structure for the industry. And then you step back a bit and look longer term and think more thematically about what's going on. And we have seen consistently across the world from China through the whole of the West, the US and Europe, et cetera, this realization that the inequality across society, which has been created effectively uh, since the financial crisis, particularly, and then was put on steroids during the pandemic, this inequality of wealth across society uh, is something that now needs addressing. It's something that now needs, as the phrase would go, leveling up, making fairer. Um, and therefore, what that means, too, is that for the bulk of consumers, the majority of people, 
uh, you're going to start seeing, again, structural drivers, and that's coming in. Wage inflation raises in the minimum wage, wanting to grow the middle classes within your societies they're trying to do uh, within China. All of that, too, is a good support for the retail sector. So structurally, over the longer term, you can see that there's a good following wind. And equally, I don't think that we're facing down this um, perhaps recession that we might be going into uh, from a consumer point of view, anywhere near as weak a position as we've seen in the past. So I think it's quite interesting what Nick was just saying there in, um, in the comment about he's clearly taking a much longer term view than most other investors at the moment. The market's very short term in nature and, and is perhaps worrying about what might happen to earnings in, in sort of the coming months rather than thinking, where could this business go in the much longer term? But um, I guess that's just the dynamics of the market at the moment. It's interesting, isn't it? Because there, we said right at the start, volatility does seem to be the name of the game. But of course, when you're talking about investing, you really need to be thinking about it long term. And, and as we've seen with these, you know, the shocks and things like the, the FTSE, the FTSE does recover. And people need maybe just to take a, a step back and to just think about what's in their portfolio. Yeah, absolutely. Make sure that it is diversified but also maybe just to take a breath before they sell something that they, they might regret long term. Absolutely. So that's all we've got time for. Next week, I'm sure there's going to be another twist in the sort of the Elon Musk Twitter Tesla story, but we'll keep you up to date as well with um, the latest earnings season from all those big corporate names. And Laura Suter will be here with the first of her Cost of Living series, looking into the benefits you can get from your bank account. Until then, thanks very much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.